With summer around the corner, just days after Rhonda's murder in 1990, the large-scale investigation, unlike any other Jeff Davis County had ever seen, involved police from three different jurisdictions, as well as the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, who had set up a temporary command center in downtown Hazelhurst. They questioned hundreds of people, Rhonda's classmates, anyone who attended the senior party the night of her disappearance, and the immediate and obvious persons of interest in any murder investigation like this, the ex-boyfriends, or anyone who might have had recent altercations with her. But in hindsight, some feel the overabundance of investigators and officers working the case may have actually been counterproductive. For example, you had sheriff's departments from two different counties, Jeff Davis County, where Hazelhurst is located and Rhonda's car was found, and Montgomery County, where her body was found as well as the Hazelhurst City Police, who had original jurisdiction since the abduction was within the city limits. For whatever reason, the different agencies weren't necessarily keen on each other and were not sharing all of the information with each other as they should have. Throw the GBI into the mix, and it's easy to see how things got very unorganized very quickly. Here's retired Hazelhurst Police Chief Steve Land. There were too many GBI agents and too many people involved in the investigation. I know they wanted to flood it, but it seemed like 20 agents at one time were working on this thing at one time. And I, you know, here the deputies are in and out over there and they've got command center set up over there. And they, Sheriff Hall has got inmates he's taken out of the jail and going over there to wash cars and clean up. And while everybody's gone to lunch one day, an inmate goes in there and they got desk drawers. He opens it up and steals some of the photographs. Things like that, it was so loosey-goosey. And they let civilians come in there while people were doing paperwork. It was just horrible. Steve was a part of the investigation from the start. He describes what it was like when he arrived at the location where Rhonda's car was found abandoned. Uh, it was not a, not a lighted area. It was a dirt road. Of course, when I got there, was people walked all over it. Everything was destroyed at that right. point. By the time Land arrived, Jeff Davis County Sheriff Mark Hall was already on the scene. And Steve remembers being angry at what the sheriff told him when he asked to be briefed. Get out of his crime scene. Get off his, get off his case. This is my case. No, it was in the city limits. Why would the sheriff tell the city police officers to leave? Yet he allowed some of Rhonda's classmates and even a few other citizens to remain for some time. But they did as they were told, because in Georgia, the sheriff has the last word. Still, it didn't sit well with Steve Land. Solve the case. Put the bad guy in jail. That's our objective. Right. That's, our, that's our mission. And it begs the question, why wouldn't all of the officers want to work together and rely on each other's experience and expertise to solve this crime? With what I know now, I definitely know why I did. Because I'll go to my grave thinking he knew exactly what happened. But 30 years on, are we any closer to accomplishing that mission and finding out who killed Rhonda Sue Coleman? From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. My investigation into Rhonda Sue Coleman's murder has taken me down so many different paths already. And no matter how many times I think I know what happened or who did it, I get thrown a curveball, and then another, and another. It's dizzying. But one thing I've taken away from the conversations I've had so far 
is that there were numerous claims of corruption in the Jeff Davis County Sheriff's Office in the 80s and early 90s. This includes accounts of drug dealing and smuggling, sexual harassment, rape, and even the cover-up of murder. All of this supposedly by uniformed officers of law. Don Walsh was just a teenager when his father was found dead alongside a young woman on December 8, 1979. Slumped over in the driver's seat of his car, Johnny Snake Walsh's death was ruled a suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. And this is what the Walsh family accepted for nearly 40 years. That is, until Don got a tip that things might not be what they seem. Uh, well, I, I hadn't... I hadn't planned on getting involved in it. That was not my intention whatsoever. But in 2015, I had really started doing some research on my father's case, which they ruled he died by carbon monoxide poisoning. And I was already always taught, but, you know, I was 15 when it happened, you know, never pursued that whatsoever until 2015. My son comes home. He's 21, 22 years old, and he asked me how did his papa die. I said, I said, all I can tell you is what they told me. And I told him the carbon monoxide story. And he said, oh, no, 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 it didn't happen like that. I said, wait a minute. I said, how do you know? Because he wasn't born yet, you know what I'm saying? So someone had stopped in the store at O'Reilly Auto Parts where he worked at and, and told him, you know, how his father was murdered or his grandfather. Don says that there were some rumors that his father was shot and killed by a local man, but there was never any evidence of that. The police reports, blood toxicology report, and death certificate all stated carbon monoxide poisoning. So I picked it up and I started really doing some research. And I've always understood there's a man here in town that was always, you know, the talk that had actually shot him. But it was never recorded legally like that. But it was just a bunch of people talking to this one man that was the one that shot him. Well, I set out. I was going to prove that this man shot him. About a year later, things really, really went backward because I couldn't find no evidence where this man had shot him whatsoever. In fact, I had I had to defend him on public media because there were some people you know, basically insinuating that he had done it. I said, hold on. I said, y'all, please don't do that because I promise you there's no proof that he had no connection with the murder. Don is pretty well known in the area around Hazelhurst for his investigation into his father's death. He owns a salvage yard just off the Baxley Highway, and he even rented space on a billboard outside his shop that's bright pink to catch your eye. And it says in bold letters, why the cover-up? Don tried gaining access to every record he could on his father's death. He contacted the sheriff's station, the county coroner, the GBI, and got very little, if any, help. But he did find out that an autopsy was never even performed on his father. They didn't do no autopsy. All they did is their blood report. And the blood report is not fatal for carbon monoxide. That's all they done. And it was handled by the sheriff. GBI actually wrote a criminal report. I've not been able to obtain the criminal report because some kind of time time expired record. I ain't up to par on all this stuff, but that's, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years it goes locked away. You know what I'm saying? Me as a 
private individual is not being able to access the GBI records. And that's a problem I've run into with Rhonda's case. Because it's still an open case, the GBI won't release any information. But Johnny Walsh's case was closed, so why can't he get information? Don shared with me the toxicology report that he was able to obtain, and it shows that the level of carbon monoxide poisoning in his father's bloodstream was not fatal. Far from it, in fact. So how did he really die? To find out, Don went with a somewhat unorthodox approach. So I had him exhumed, and he has got a hole behind his left ear. I'm no forensics expert, but it would seem to me with a bullet hole behind his ear, police would have wanted to maybe take a second look at this man's death. Still, Don could get none of his questions answered. And without the help of local or state officials, he took his search to the streets. But make long story short, I've interviewed over 500 people. I worked on this hard for four years, and I've got record of everybody I've interviewed. But a lot of them people was not familiar with my daddy's death like they were Rhonda's death. And they would go start, you know, telling me what they knew about Rhonda's death. I didn't ask for none of this. All I was doing was listening. And this is where it all starts to come full circle. In Don's investigation into his own father's apparent murder, so many of the people he started interviewing over a four-year period seemed to have information on Rhonda's death. So many that he began to investigate her death as well. It got so strong, I got a hold of Rhonda's family, which Rhonda's actually my about third cousin. But I got a hold, not Melton or Gail, it was her, their niece that handled it, Natasha. Well, anyway, I got a hold of her and um, discussed what I was being told. And she uh, got with Milton and Gail, and they went and hired him a, a private investigator. You probably spoke with him. I forget his name. From what Don's talking about Detective Jody Ponzel, who initially contacted me about Rhonda's case. Yeah, Ponzel, that's right. And I carried Jody to a fellow's house that uh, knows a lot about this situation. The man that Don took Detective Ponzel to see is named Roy Robertson. But why is it that Roy supposedly has information about Rhonda's murder? He was, clo- he was close to the situation back in the day. He was very close to the sheriff, and he was very close to some that was involved. Back in the day, he even tried to carry some information, or he did, to the... GBI here, well, it's in Douglas, the local district office is. Him and another man went over there with the info, and they proceeded to try to lock him up because he knew too much. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, he got out of there, da-da-da, and got right home. And He's had some higher-ups stop by and see him and let him know that he needs to forget anything he knows about this. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. I wanted to talk with this guy and see exactly what it is that he claims to know. And when I met up with Don in Hazelhurst, he took me to meet Roy. 
And Roy is unlike anyone I've ever met. Don took me to the outskirts of town to visit Roy at his home. We pulled onto a dirt road with farmland on either side of us, and about a half mile in, there was a small house off to the left. When I say small house, think of those tiny houses that you see on TV shows. It's actually a pretty cool setup. We walked up to the front door, sidestepping the washing machine on the porch, and Don spoke with Roy about me. He agreed to talk to me, and he stepped outside, along with his two dogs. The larger of the two, which I think was just named White Dog, had only one eye, and the hole where the other eye used to be was filled with pus and goo. But she was sweet and affectionate and wouldn't stop trying to jump into my lap. The other, which was named simply Dog, was some kind of collie mix. He was black and white and brown with light-colored eyes. And literally half the time Roy and I spoke, Dog humped his leg. Roy seems to have just given up trying to stop him. <clears throat> well, my name's Roy Robertson. Uh, I've lived here all my life. Yeah. Growed up here. Seventy eight years. It's been a it's been a good life, I mean. Uh, we've had our ups and downs, we've had our shootings, we've you know, it's just it's been a good life. At seventy eight years old, Roy still has a full head of long, wildly untamed blonde hair. He's wearing a pair of old black jeans that are faded to an almost gray color, and he's got on a camouflage hunting jacket. His face shows years of experience and his hands show years of hard labor, a working man's hands. He and Don catch up for a minute, and then Roy gets right to the point. All right, cuz, what do you want to know? I start off with the easy questions at first to get Roy comfortable with me. Like, how has Hazelhurst changed over the years? Well, the only thing about it, what I call the mob, the mob has died out, Yeah, most of them. First answer, the mob. The mob. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a long story and a long thing to go back to and uh, and go through all this mess. But uh, like I say, I hate to talk about dead people. It's already, you know, but I, um, it still bothers me. And, and some of us around here get together and we talk about it, yeah. how things got by, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but we all come back to just about the same conclusion, you know. The judges was bought, uh, disc attorneys, anything, anybody do have power and money, yeah. control. Whiskey running, murders, you name it. Of course, every county has it. We have, every county has the same, same thing, but I don't think it's got no better. Ain't nothing got no better than probably our murders. They kind of backed off a little bit. Second answer, murders have backed off a bit. So my first thought is, I may be wasting my time here. Why do you think there were so many murders? I mean, you say the mob, but, you know, is Well, I know of 13 that have gone unsolved? Right. Yeah. Uh, some of them I was involved in, some of them I wasn't, you know. Uh, that you were involved in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't involved in the murder. Right, right. I was 
I was with the law, you know, that gotcha. was supposed to be investigating these murders. The law that Roy is referring to is the sheriff of Jeff Davis County at the time, Mark Hall. He and Roy were close friends, and Roy says that he would go along with the sheriff and other deputies sometimes on drug busts, or whenever the sheriff might need extra muscle, who could handle a gun. Roy and I continue talking, and he goes on to tell me about how there were certainly instances of what you could say was corruption in the sheriff's department at the time. He says that there were deputies dating young high school girls, and that there were some who abused their power when it came to women. I've heard this from several other people as well. Tish Kelly had told me in our conversation that she remembers deputies allowing young girls to drive their patrol cars and race in them down by the river landings. And I've also heard that it was commonplace for police to pull over young women, even high school-age girls, with the intent of propositioning them with sexual acts to get out of a ticket, or they might scare them with the threat of being arrested for something, with the same end goal. But the one person whose name comes up the most concerning corruption is the former sheriff himself, Mark Hall. And it's mostly concerning drug trafficking. Yeah, we're just all that close, you know, but now we've done a lot of wrong things. You and Mark? Yeah. Well, we drugs. Yeah. Oh, shit, I've been down there to his office, to go in his office and take out twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of drug money. You know, go yeah. send it. Shit, they wanted something, they'd go in there and get drug money and go buy it. Shit. I've been with them on drug bus. They'd know the drugs were there, know right where they was at, and everything, and then walk out and leave. And they disappear. Yeah, yeah. Crazy things, I mean. Roy tells me that Mark Hall and some of his deputies were taking money from drug busts and keeping it instead of it going into an evidence locker. They would spend the money on themselves, and they would confiscate drugs from busts and, just the same, keep them to later sell. Some of the claims Roy's making seem outlandish. But when I sat down with Steve Land later that day and asked if he knew Roy Robertson, things take an unexpected turn. Mark paid him to kill me. Really? Mm-hmm. Sure did. That's why I had a wire wiretap put on my home phone, because Mark had told me who was going to have killed me. And uh, then he threatened to kill a GBI agent, and my partner and I escorted the GBI agent back to his home in Coffee County. Another issue altogether. But Mark told, told the agent was going to have him killed and who was going to kill him. And Roy was, was a hitman for Mark. Let me just remind you that this is a county sheriff we're talking about here. But Roy was a thug. He was a bad guy. Really bad guy. He was a drug, drug yeah. mule, but yeah. he, did, he did bad stuff for Mark. The drug smuggling operation was so big here. I mean, so much of it, so much of it. Steve tells me that the drug trafficking was actually a huge operation that consisted of multiple counties in South and Central Georgia. And law enforcement and or public officials were involved in each one of them at one time or another. Darien was an import area. Um, they were shrimp boats coming into Darien in McIntosh County. Gulf Shores, Alabama. They stole a semi here backhoe here. I flew to Gulf Shores, Alabama to identify part of the stolen property from here and they were taking a backhoe and unloading bales of marijuana and had a big chop shop up in Dodge County, Eastman. And that's where dope was being muled out of. Gulf Shores, Jeff Davis County, and the corruption was so rampant. The sheriff here would take prisoners out of the jail 
that had been arrested on domestic violence or DUI and take them to his farm and they would clean out trailers that had been hauling marijuana because they'd get some debris in there. Well, they'd, they'd have to sweep them out. And I'm told this, I don't know this firsthand, but I'm told this by some of the ones because they would steal the trailers, use them one time and then take them back and dump them. And they'd want any possibility it looked like marijuana had been hauled in them, but it was an ongoing, ongoing thing. Uh, Brownsville, Texas, drugs, marijuana being imported from Brownsville brought here. Six sheriffs of all the surrounding these counties, every one of them were corrupt. Every stinking one of them were corrupt. And they were all serving at the same time. So were they all part of the same operation? Or were they all freelancing? Well, I know some of them were operating together. Hearing this makes me wonder, how could this go on for so long without being broken up or arrests being made, even if it was a sheriff being arrested? Mark was revered. He did so many personal favors. All the corruption that was going on, a lot of people knew it, just didn't want to believe it. I worked very closely with just deceased sheriff of Appling County, Lewis Parker, on the corruption that was in Appling County. At the time, the sheriff, the GBI agent, the chief of police all went down. GBI agent turned state's evidence and went to witness protection. Mark Hall, and I've got this somewhere, I've got the whole grand jury indictment. Mark Hall was an unindicted co-conspirator in that drug operation. Sheriff Hall was never indicted because he was killed in the line of duty in 1992. But Steve tells me that when Hall was killed, he believes he was just a couple months away from that inevitable indictment. There was so much money changing hands. Um, I can take you to a place right now. This was one of the main, main operatives for Mark. Never showed a lick of prosperity until after Mark was killed. And all of a sudden, prosperity exploded. Why is that? Because he was told to stay under the radar. Everybody knew he was a major player in the, in the operation. And then after Mark died, the operation went away or changed to where this person wasn't involved, didn't need to be involved anymore because he'd already made his money. Anyway, they were taking milk trucks, had false bottoms and tanker trucks. The whole bottom was full of marijuana. We'd go to Wisconsin, Michigan. Steve is talking about the corruption in Appling County, Georgia here. That area was rampant with crime and drug trafficking in the early 80s. It involved Jeff Davis, too, uh, because I caught Mark and the sheriff down there in the GBI measuring the runway here one night. And I was threatened to be killed if I ever spoke of it. Well, I went straight to the FBI, of course. The sheriffs were measuring the tiny private landing strip for a reason. How big a plane you can land. How big a plane you can get into the... And then I found, wow. found marijuana, bales of marijuana, life raft, fuel pump on the end of the runway down there one night. Apparently it was, a, it was put there after a plane had landed and it was apparently a smuggle plane that had come over from the islands or wouldn't have had a life raft and an extra fuel pump. And then I found a plane with all the seats gone, extra fuel tanks in the passenger compartment. They had a, um, a hidden runway in Appling County, and they had 30-gallon drums with pine trees planted in them, and they had wheels on them so you could tilt the barrel over, roll it over here, and you put smut pots out, the plane landed, and then you rolled the trees back. And, and I flew with I flew with Customs and and the DEA in a plane looking for runways and discovered too. 
It's hard to believe that an operation of this magnitude went on unchecked for years in these little farming communities. You're talking about thousands of pounds of drugs being trafficked in, and numerous lawmen and public officials were accomplices. It seems straight out of a movie. You know, you sit back and you look at Coffee County had a corrupt sheriff. They had a shootout with the FBI on the main street over there, and then that sheriff got gone. Another sheriff got elected and took his place, and he was just as corrupt. GBI caught him, and he ended up shooting himself in front of the GBI. I caught some of his dope here, and he threatened to... I told him I was going to call Fox News, because he, he threatened me. And I, and I said, I'm calling Fox News right now. He said, go ahead, I'm going to have you killed. Anyway, he got caught. Steve's referring to former Coffee County Sheriff Carlton Evans, who shot himself in the heart in front of the GBI to avoid getting arrested on drug trafficking charges. According to an article in the Washington Post from June 15, 1982, titled Georgia Law Officials Found to be Involved in Trafficking in Drugs, there would be at least 40 Georgia lawmen or public officials accused of drug offenses over a two-year period in the early 80s, and many were paid upwards of $50,000 per plane load of product that landed on makeshift runways in their county. The product included marijuana, cocaine, quaaludes, and methamphetamine brought in from the Caribbean islands. The article states that at one point in 1981, a Georgia public official was being arrested on drug-related charges every 19 days. There is a reason I'm diving into all this drug trafficking and corruption with law enforcement. Because it was a big deal. And it shows you that you really couldn't trust that everyone with a uniform had your best interest in mind as a citizen. They were capable of breaking the law for personal and financial gain, just like any other criminal. And there were people killed for running their mouths or not playing along. Hell, Roy Robertson said he even knew of 13 unsolved murders in Jeff Davis County alone. And Steve Land is a 40-plus year decorated veteran of law enforcement, one of the good, honest men with a badge. And what he's told me definitely gives more credit to the things I heard from Roy, which I confess at the time I spoke with him, Seemed a little crazy with all the talk of the mob. But when you bring mass amounts of drugs on planes and semis and milk trucks with false floors, the idea of a mob being involved suddenly gets more realistic. But how does this all tie into the murder of an 18-year-old high school student? It's not so much the mob aspect. It's the possibility of police covering things up that has drawn interest in some people. Actually, quite a few people. And Don Walsh is one person asking that very question because of some of the things he encountered during the investigation into his father's death. It involves former Chief Deputy Don Creamer. Remember, he was the one that knew the Coleman's well and called in all the other deputies on the night of Rhonda's disappearance. He had been a part of the investigation into Don's father as well years before. Don was very involved in my father's mishap. I went and talked with Don one time about it. When I was just gathering information, I didn't know nothing. And he told me what he seen because he was there and he put his eyes on the bodies. Uh, my father and the woman in a car was murdered. But they ruled them both carbon monoxide. Well, he goes on and tells me, you know, it was a sexual thing. And they, was, they was caught there with their clothes off and in the act. And all this, I'm just listening, taking it all in. So, you know, if that's what happened, that's what happened. You know what I'm saying? I get in the old courthouse room up here. I went back in the old storage room looking for basically daddy's file. 
Well, I come up on what they had, and it had four photos on Polaroid one step. Well, they're, they're in the front seat, sitting up, completely closed. So I said, okay, I got to go back and talk to Mr. Don again. Maybe he's seen them at a different time. You know what I'm saying? The crime scene photos that Don Walsh found in an old storage room at the county courthouse didn't match what Deputy Don Creamer told him that he had seen. Mr. Creamer said that Johnny Walsh and a woman were both found dead in his car and that they were both naked and were having sex at the time of their deaths. But in the four photos Don Walsh found, his father and the woman he was with were both fully clothed. Don, I said, uh, I said, I need to speak with you one more time there. I said, uh, there's some research I they found some photos. Oh, boy. When I said photos, he lost it. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, I ain't going to never tell you nothing else. Oh, I'm trying to help you out. Man. I'm trying to help you out. I said, hold on now. I said, I'm just, I'm just interested in, you know, knowing what you've seen. That's all I want to know is what you've seen. Needless to say, he wouldn't really talk to me no more after he figured out I'd seen photos. I tried to speak with Deputy Creamer. I called several times and no answer. On one of my trips to Hazelhurst, I stopped by his house and he answered the door. Mr. Creamer was visibly ill and is in failing health. He just got out of the hospital, actually. He apologized for not returning my calls, but said he was just too ill to sit down and talk. And I believed him. I decided not to push it. Again, this is something I've just had to learn to accept when dealing with a murder that happened 30 years ago. Either way, it seemed I'd hit a dead end with Don Creamer for now. I tried getting in touch with Leroy Sanders, too. That's the first officer on the scene that night, but he's not been receptive to speaking with me. Steve Land even tried to talk to Leroy for me, but no dice. Now, the reason these two names even appeared on my radar were because of my conversations with Roy Robertson and Steve Land. Roy and Steve both had mentioned that Don Creamer and Leroy Sanders were both tight with Sheriff Mark Hall and did some odd jobs for him. At the time... Sheriff Hall was untouchable, and he was, according to people like Steve Land, certainly corrupt. The sheriffs have too much power. When they're elected, they're told, they they go to this class, the sheriff's class, and they're told they're the senior law enforcement officer of the county, and nobody can question what they do. And they have exclusive authority, and they do what they want to do time and time again. That's better than it used to be 20 or 30 years ago, but it's still got a ways to go. It would seem that sheriffs like Mark Hall answered only to themselves. If they went down a dark path and worked closely with other corrupt officials and GBI agents, who'd be able to stop them, really? I saw him with my own eyes steal $40,000 one night from a drug raid. Cash money. Cash money. Anyway, it was never reported. I mean, I reported it, but they couldn't prove it. It was my word against his, and they didn't confront him. They said it would only cause problems for me, so... I had to pass the information along to the feds over and over and over. I ran a wiretap out of my house here for two years with the feds, and Mark Hall was offering protection for cocaine coming out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The guy got life in prison, and Mark got nothing. And why Mark never got indicted on that, I'll never know, but he didn't. If sheriffs like this were untouchable and corrupt, were providing protection for drug traffickers, and taking bribes for looking the other way when drug shipments were brought into their counties, would they also be willing to look the other way 
or protect someone in a murder, like Rhonda's, if the someone that murdered her was close to them, close like their own family. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032, 2015. Jr.com. Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.